0: Welcome back to the Clerkship Success Series of the Immunology Exam Prep Podcast. My name is Charlie.
1: And my name is Sonia.
0: And today we are welcoming back Dr. Jeremy Muller to teach us about headaches. So Sonia is here with the learning goals.
1: So the objectives for today are first to review some of the red flags that may point towards secondary causes of headaches. We'll discuss the 2 snoop 4 mnemonic, which medical students may be familiar with, uh, as, as well as some of the conditions that this mnemonic may point to. Then we'll talk about some key features of primary headache disorders. And finally, we'll discuss indications for neuroimaging in headache.
0: First of all, to start off our episode, what is your framework for approaching a patient who complains of headaches? Yeah, you know, I think headache can be challenging because as a student or even as somebody more experienced, if you're dealing with somebody with an acute headache, then you're in parallel At the same time, basically dealing with both the managing their discomfort because they might be in terrible pain and the process of going through the diagnostic process, you know, the the diagnostic considerations and, and, and figuring things out. We're going to focus less on the acute treatment, but my heart goes out to the medical students who are sent in to see a patient with an acute headache and have to take their usual medical student history, which naturally is going to take a little bit longer than usual when that person really is not interested in talking to them at the moment. So uh, to those residents out there, uh, really help the student by providing the patient with some acute treatment for the headache first, before they start taking the history. When we uh, see somebody in the outpatient setting and they have a headache problem, so a history of headaches, it's a little bit easier because they might not be in the middle of their headache ictus at that moment. But uh, in that case, really, we're doing a couple of things. The first is deciding if they have a primary headache disorder and the vast majority of primary headache headaches are going to be migraine. There are some other less common headache disorders, which we've discussed on this podcast before, or is it a secondary headache? Is it due to something else? And headaches can be very disturbing to people. If you probe deeply enough, most people are worried they have a brain tumor or they've had an aneurysm. Those are, those are causes of headaches, but they're rare. Uh, and so a lot of what we're doing is really digging down, trying to figure out, is this primary or secondary to something else? What type of headache syndrome is it? And then in parallel, thinking about the treatment options that might be available.
1: So let's begin with this first part of the framework then, which is determining if this is a primary headache disorder or if it's secondary to something else. What clues in the history would make you worry that this headache is a secondary headache?
0: Yeah, I think... Um, There are several mnemonics. I think the one we've chosen for this podcast is perfectly appropriate, although there are others. Honestly, I don't really use a mnemonic. Some of it is based on experience. Uh, um, Once you've seen a few thousand uh, people with headaches uh, and seen all the permutations, but mnemonics are good uh, to start. And uh, uh, you both know we have a a fancy dancy card that is two pages that we print out and give to all our learners on headaches. And we do have the two Snoop4 on one side. So I'm gonna pull it up because I can't remember all of these. Uh, but, uh, so you can be forgiven if you can't either. So the two SNOOP4 is basically two S's. That's the two S and then N-O-O-P. And then it's the P4 because there are four P things. So two SNOOP4. So uh, the two S's are secondary risk factors. Uh, so risk factors for secondary headaches, You know, immunosuppression, uh, uh, you know, having a history of malignancy, for example, uh, or being on medications that can produce secondary headache disorders, you know. Um, SSRIs can produce uh, reversible uh, cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome. Uh, uh, immune suppression and chemotherapeutic drugs can cause press, uh, a posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. So uh, as I say with everyone, I, uh, one thing I'm particularly obsessive compulsive about is a medication reconciliation. I think that's extremely important. And looking through and seeing if those could be important factors and a careful past medical history, you know, cancer, immunosuppression agents, an immunosuppressed state like HIV, those sorts of things. So that's the secondary risk factors. Going along with the secondary risk factors would be symptoms and signs of a secondary cause. So that's the other S symptoms and signs. And again, we're thinking about malignancy. Infection, you know, vascular problems. And so the symptoms and signs of malignancy or infection might be fever, chills, other systemic symptoms. Uh, For malignancy, might be a history of malignancy, weight loss, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Those sorts of things would be worrisome. Then we go to the NOO. So the first N is neurological deficits. And it's very important to uh, exclude. Aura from this, and we've talked in other podcasts about Aura, but Aura specifically is focal neurological deficits that are often seen prior to migraine, you know, in in a portion of patients with migraines. And those are transient reversible neurological deficits. The three top categories of Aura are visual symptoms, sensory symptoms, particularly positive sensory symptoms like paresthesias, and language or cognitive symptoms, those are going to be the big ones for aura. So we'll put those aside. If you have a visual aura, if you have some hemi- uh, unilateral paresthesias, we're not so worried. We're talking about other focal neurological dis- uh, symptoms. So weakness, that would be very worrisome. Weakness is pretty rare with a migraine. Uh, and uh, profound uh, speech or swallowing problems, uh, profound cognitive deficits, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Those would be worrisome. The uh, the two O's, uh, the first is sort of onset in the acute phase. And the second one is onset in life. Uh, and the first onset is, was it sudden? Now, everything starts all at once. You know, you, you go from not having a headache to having a headache. They're all sudden onset. But a thunderclap headache is a headache that goes from zero to maximal or near maximal intensity very quickly. So it's that clap, all of a sudden, there is just this ab- abrupt onset of an intensely severe headache. Uh, and so I'll ask people about that I, I sometimes use very graphic descriptions, but it can be very helpful, you know, did it feel like somebody took a running start and hit you in the back of the head with a baseball bat, you know, it was it really this dramatic moment, uh, you know, that you had with the onset of the headache. and. Uh, and thunderclap, there's a differential diagnosis for thunderclap headache, uh, which uh, we can't get into in, in in a lot of detail, but it tends to be vascular causes, so um, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage from a ruptured intracranial aneurysm, uh, and, uh, 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 cerebral artery dissection, you know, things like that could be causes of thunderclap headache. And then we to think about onset in life. Uh, most people with primary headache syndromes have an onset of their headaches earlier in life, you know, in childhood or teens or 20s. Uh, It's less common to have your first migraine of your life in middle age. It happens though, and probably still, the most common cause of new onset headaches in middle age is probably migraine, but it certainly raises your antenna and raises the risk of other things. So if you're seeing somebody with their first severe headache with migraines features at age 50, say, you're going to want to think about secondary causes. In the end, it may be migraine. It really might, but you're going to want to think about secondary causes. Then we're going to go to the four Ps. So papilledema, optic disc edema, that is related to impaired axoplasmic flow, and that's related to increased intracranial pressure, and increased intracranial pressure can have all sorts of causes. It could be idiopathic, or it could be related to a mass lesion. Positional component. Uh, So is it worse when you're lying down? That might suggest increased pressure in your head. Is it worse when you're standing up? That might suggest decreased pressure in your head. And we are seeing a lot more interest and research into spontaneous intracranial hypotension as a cause for refractory migraines. So people who have a spontaneous leak of CSF in their back or other places causing refractory ter- ter- terrible headaches. Uh, the third P is sort of a, a prior headache history with a change. So. Somebody has a long history of migraines, but they say this is different. This, this is a, in a different place. It has different characteristics at a different onset than we worry about that. And uh, the last P is a little bit of a stretch, but it's precipitated by an increase in inter- intrathoracic pressure. Uh, again, I, I would forgive you if you couldn't remember that. But it is important that you know. I probably would put a B, but I don't think that fits with two snoop uh, P4. Uh, So I I would say V because of Valsalva, right, you know, um, and so if you have a headache that's worsened by Valsalva uh, or straining, that suggests that there's a problem with CSF flow dynamics. Often it means that there is something like a Chiari malformation or some other process that's causing impairment of flow through the foramen magnum, through the base of the skull. And so when you Valsalva, you get venous congestion, you have a little less space in that area, you get increased pressure and you get a headache. And so cough or Valsalva-induced headache, uh, you really should be looking for a secondary cause, particularly at that cranial cervical junction.
1: So again, these are a lot of features, it can definitely be difficult to remember all of these off the top of your head. Uh, But just broadly, these take into consideration some demographic features, things like age, comorbid conditions and associated medications, as well as the specific features of the headache, like a thunderclap onset or the positional nature. And again, the reason why these elements are considered worrisome is because they may point to headache being secondary to something else. So let's briefly touch on a few common etiologies of secondary headaches, which may be on the differential. We won't be able to go through an exhaustive list, but there are certainly some conditions that medical students should be aware of and might see on the wards. So we'll touch on some of these briefly. And we'll begin with some of these can't-miss diagnoses. One that you've already alluded to earlier is subarachnoid hemorrhage. So what should medical students know about that?
0: Yeah. And, and and just taking a, a quick step back, you know, when I talk to uh, medical students or residents, early learners, I always say, you know, at the end of the day, after I see every patient, I think of two words, common and serious. You know, I'm not perfect. I might not nail that rarest thing that ever happened. I'm certainly never going to give up until I have an answer for, for patients within the, the range of my abilities to do so. But I always think common and serious, right? So when we reach the end of seeing somebody with a, with a headache, we're thinking, okay, what are the common things? Let's list those as possibilities. And what are the things that could cause real problems for this person? And, and, and that's where we get to the list here. So just remember those. And, and for the students who are listening, when you are you know, put on the spot, okay, what do you think? Two words, common, serious. And and that'll that'll get you most of the way there. It'll make you a good doctor. The second thing I'll say, just taking a step back, is uh, there really is no replacement for doing the history and physical just like you were taught, right? You know, we have this two, snoop four, and whatever, and all those checklists and so on. But honestly, you know onset, intensity, duration, character, relieving factors, you know, uh, 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 precipitating factors. If you just go through that uh, that recipe, you'll get most of those. And And the mnemonic is really to understand how those fit in. So I just wanna say those before we get to these. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about subarachnoid hemorrhage. That's what everybody worries about. That's in the serious category, not in the common category, but in the serious category. So subarachnoid hemorrhage can be either spontaneous, unrelated to an aneurysm, so non-aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, typically around the brainstem, per or in other regions, and then there's aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, and that's related to rupture of a saccular aneurysm, you know, there's an out, uh, outpouching of, a, of an artery and that ruptures and it causes blood to escape into the subarachnoid space. Both of these are painful because of the irritation of the meninges, which is part of the main afferent input to the brainstem that leads to pain, you know, perception of pain in the head. Both are related to a sudden eruption of blood and disruption of vascular gerbil- presumably. And so the onset will be sudden. And so a subarachnoid hemorrhage is going to have that abrupt onset with peak intensity very quickly. You can have what we call sentinel bleeds, right? You know, a a saccular aneurysm, also known as a berry aneurysm, can bleed a little bit and then close over sometimes. And we call that a sentinel bleed. And that may cause that brief uh, uh, um, uh, thunderclap headache. In either case, uh, what you want to do is uh, investigate further. The new the you know new, uh, this is not that new but spiral CT scans which have sort of evolved since I was a resident are, are very good at picking up subarachnoid blood not perfect but quite good. Uh, they make it less and less necessary for us to do lumbar puncture to look for uh, if, to look for blood products. Uh, and then, if you have a high suspicion for a vascular abnormality in many cases we're going to do arterial imaging either CTA or MR angiography uh, for that. Um, But all of those things are going to be uh, predicated on that new onset of that abrupt thunderclap headache.
1: And students will probably be be familiar with this thunderclap 10 out of 10 worst headache of life being sort of a buzzword at times, particularly on exams for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, Let's move on to another condition. Uh, What about temporal arteritis, which is also known as giant cell arteritis?
0: Yeah, so... um... I was taught the 50-50-50 rule for uh, temporal arteritis, which I know I share with students. I don't know if it's perfect, but it's pretty helpful. And that is temporal arteritis is pretty darn rare in people younger than 50 years old. So not something you really need to be too worried about in a 25 year old, uh, you know, it's, that's not gonna be very high on the list of refractory headaches in that patient. The ESR should be over fifty. So, uh, and again, not perfect, but generally speaking, you're going to have an elevated ESR or CRP or both. And then the third fifty is you treat it with prednisone, typically at about fifty milligrams a day. You know, sort of in the one milligram uh, uh, per per kilogram per day uh, range or, or somewhere around that. Um, the classic features uh, many of the students would know would be a side locked headache in a middle aged or older adult. Uh, there's jaw claudication that is chewing produces worsening pain in the jaw, uh, and the th- the reason we worry about uh, giant cell arteritis is because it's a it's a medium vessel vasculitis a vascular uh, in- inflammation of the arteries which can result in inflammation of arteries uh, that go to the retina, uh, and so you can get an ischemic optic neuropathy related to this. Uh, And the arteritic ischemic optic neuropathy is severely visually vision-threatening. And so you really have to diagnose and treat this before somebody loses vision.
1: Great. Let's move on to another condition. Let's talk about idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which is sometimes uh, used interchangeably with the term pseudotumor cerebri.
0: Yeah. And the reason it was called pseudotumor, uh, this is sort of predates... Uh, mri technology or sort of wide availability of brain imaging i think Uh, but historically this was called pseudotumor because one of the ways you would know or suspect that somebody had an intracranial mass prior to broad uh imaging was if they had optic disc edema you know so in, in the past it was very hard to diagnose brain masses without imaging but if somebody had neurological symptoms that were progressing and optic disc edema you you would strongly suspect an intracranial mass like a tumor. And so that's why it's called pseudotumor, because you have this optic disc edema without a mass. Um, We call it idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which I think is a little more accurate and descriptive term uh, and less confusing. Look, there's nobody listening that has grown up in a world without wide availability of brain imaging technology. So we can probably move beyond some of these uh, old-fashioned terms. we don't know what causes idiopathic intracranial hypertension there's some thought that it's more related to excessive production of csf uh, and i don't know if there's an element of impaired absorption of csf regardless there is increased intracranial pressure without hydrocephalus so you don't get enlargement of the ventricles or things like that but because you have this elevated pressure in the head uh, you get impaired axoplasmic flow through the uh optic nerves and because you get impaired axoplasmic flow through the optic nerves you get development of optic disc edema which can progress to the point where you get enlargement of blind spots and other abnormalities in the retina that lead to uh, permanent visual loss if untreated and so again just like temporal arteritis we're most concerned about the vision and the treatments that we focus on you know either CSF diversion uh, or uh, treatments that reduce CSF production, like acetazolamide and other diuretics, um, those are really the focus is on saving vision. And in my experience, and I think in most people's experience, uh, the vision saving aspects of treatment tend to be a little bit more straightforward in most cases. You know, it, it's a little easier to sort of prevent pr- uh, progression of those symptoms uh, if you treat appropriately. The headaches can often uh, persist. And people with IIH may also have comorbid migraines. So we may be treating both the visual uh, symptoms and then also adding on migraine uh, treatments as well. Uh, the clinical presentation is typically somebody who is overweight or obese, not always. Uh, it's more common in women than in men. Uh, there may be a positional component, but we sometimes don't see that. Asking about visual symptoms in large blind spots, uh, a difficulty with uh, seeing in the center of your vision is important. If it's very bad, you can actually get a uh, non localizing sixth nerve palsy. Uh, so, you get basically, I think it's stretch along the sixth nerve, and you get difficulty with abduction of either eye, either clinically, either by symptoms or on examination. Um, and then there are a few medications, uh, the retinoids, for example, uh, sometimes steroids, other medications that can cause uh, oral contraceptive pills, other medications that have been associated with IIH. So, again, History, physical, medication, reconciliation are all going to be really important. The reason that IIH is so important to know about uh, is is that everybody with headache, both first encounter and on subsequent encounters, you should be looking at their optic discs um, because uh, it's an easy thing to miss if you don't look. Uh, And the other reason, again, for all you future neurology residents out there, You get better at looking at optic discs if you do it in everyone uh, and you learn about the individual challenges and the nuances. So we should be doing ophthalmoscopy on everybody with headaches.
1: Absolutely. And so we'll remember from the mnemonic that we discussed earlier, things like the papilledema, potentially a positional nature, all come directly from the mnemonic and may point you in this direction. Let's talk about now uh, spontaneous intracranial hypotension which you also discussed a, a bit earlier.
0: Yeah, this is one um, that's that's sort of a newer kid on the block. We've always known about this syndrome, but I think we're broadening our recognition of who might have this problem. Uh, and so this is a dynamically changing, certainly in my practice and in the people I refer to, you know, even more dedicated headache specialists. But the idea is, that somebody with spontaneous intracranial hypotension has a CSF leak, usually in the spine, um, that has occurred spontaneously. And exactly how that occurs is not well known. There may be little blebs of the dura or the meninges that are sort of in the spinous structures that somehow through trauma or spontaneously rupture and leave a hole that allows this slow, steady leaking, or this recurrent intermittent leaking of CSF through uh, the the, uh, interstitial uh, tissues in the spine, causing this just chronically low pressure in the head, head. And this chronically low pressure in the head leads to stretching of the meninges, which can lead to pain. And presumably, classically, if you're lying down, there's less of a pressure differential between your head and your back, and you're gonna have less symptoms. If you're standing up, there's more of a pressure differential between your head and your back, and you're going to have worsening symptoms. So somebody who has much worse symptoms when they're standing, especially after a period of time, and very few symptoms when they're lying down, this is something you might think of. Now it turns out that many of the bets are off and that you can have spontaneous intracranial hypertension, hypotension without having, um, uh, without having postural symptoms. You may not have classic MRI findings with that diffuse enhancement of the meninges that you're going to see because of the stretching of the meninges uh, uh, due to the low pressure. You might not have crowding in the foramen magnum of the brain structures because of sagging of the head. Those are sort of the classic things you would see, but you might not see those. And we consider spontaneous intracranial hypotension on the differential of anyone with sort of new onset refractory or super refractory headache that is new onset headache which may or may not have migraine features which just is impossible to treat you know not responding to anything and just as an aside for those interested learners there's a syndrome called new daily persistent headache and what that is is this headache that the person can remember the moment it started off and that's sort of a a clinical feature it's like i remember 215 on a Tuesday afternoon, I had this headache started and it's been with me ever since, you know, and it can persist for months or years, and it's famous for being so difficult to treat uh, and so disabling for patients. And I think people are looking back at at some of these people with new daily persistent headache and saying maybe they have a spontaneous CSF leak uh, in some cases and and maybe things like. an empiric blood patch you know you put some blood in the in the back of the spine or a CT myelogram where you put a needle into the meninges uh, under the dura and inject uh, uh, inject contrast and do a CT scan to look for extravasation of flow maybe those are things that we need to do in patients with ultra refractory headaches to see if there's some other way to treat it
1: so again a potentially a positional component here, uh, sort of the opposite of IIH, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, where with spontaneous intracranial hypotension, you tend to see improvement with lying down. But as you said, you know, not a hard and fast rule, definitely patients who have this diagnosis who don't present that way. Uh, but really, it seems like it's a condition that should be considered for new headaches that are just refractory to, to treatment. Uh, let's move on now to posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome which is also known as press
0: yeah i think this is uh this is a a great one i i find this syndrome incredibly interesting it's something we encounter a fair bit uh in the hospital setting uh and uh i don't really understand what what the cause is per se but sort of the classic things you're going to think about when you're thinking about press in terms of presentation are going to be a headache often, uh, altered mental status, so some cognitive or or a level of arousal issues, classically visual symptoms because of the posterior component, so it starts in the occipital region, and, and seizures. So somebody with headache, altered mental status, seizures and visual changes, I'm thinking press pretty high on the list. Um, of course infection and other things are pretty high on that list too, but in the absence of infection, and Um, PRESS has a fairly classic um, MRI uh, characteristics, and that is that you see edematous changes and sometimes uh, restricted diffusion, classically in posterior head regions, but it can extend anteriorly. There are variants that are maximal in the brainstem, you know, so it, it can have a lot of different features. And then I think the thing that helps you is if you have headache, altered mental status, seizures, you know, that sort of thing, and then you have some MRI changes with white matter and some gray matter changes that look edematous, even with some restricted diffusion, but multifocal or diffuse. And you have a precipitating factor. Then you think press. And the precipitating factor is probably the biggest one is is hypertensive emergency. And and we're talking really high blood pressures. You know, systolic blood pressures over two hundred in many cases. Um, But then also certain immunomodulating medications, Uh, tacrolimus is classic uh, for precipitating uh, press. Uh, So in people with a history of organ uh, transplant, for example, Um, there are other chemotherapeutic agents, etc, etc, then you're thinking about press. So I'm going to say it again. Medication reconciliation, history and physical examination, past medical history, all that stuff our med students who are listening here spend all that time practicing it's worth it. There are no shortcuts in life. You know, if the, the answer will be revealed to you if you do these things, even if you haven't thought of it in the first place.
1: Definitely. <laughs> All right. Let's talk now about headache due to intracranial mass or tumor, which as you said, is often something that if you really dig deeply, patients will be concerned about when they have frequent headaches.
0: Yeah, listen, it's the elephant in the room when I see a patient with uh, new headaches, right, uh, you know, and, and so sometimes we have to uh, address it straight on, you know, uh, I'll often ask, and, and this is just sort of a doctoring thing I'll share, you know, uh, that that I've been taught, which is I'll ask people, what are you worried about, you know, and and if it's somebody with headaches, brain tumor comes up more often than not. Um, it's it's pretty rare and as we talked about the likelihood of finding a mass lesion in somebody with new onset headaches is very small in the in the single digits percentage range or or lower in in general especially in the absence of red flags you know it's probably very small in the absence of red flags and and we're going to talk about imaging but we're not going to necessarily image everybody with with new onset headaches if there are zero red flags and if we're very convinced uh, and there are some uh, uh, prompts for imaging including the mnemonic that we've mentioned above Uh, But headaches are a common symptom of brain tumor. Uh, They're one of the most common, along with seizures, for example. Uh, And, you know, if you have a headache that's new, that's progressive, that's not responding to therapy, that is associated with neurological deficits, or if they have optic disc edema, or any of those red flags we've mentioned above, then you're going to want to do brain imaging in order to ensure that somebody doesn't have a mass lesion, a, a primary or a secondary brain tumor.
1: Great. Now let's finish up by talking about a, a bit of a less acute syndrome, but definitely a diagnosis that medical students will, will know and be familiar with. Let's talk about trigeminal neuralgia and We'll just be mindful that this should not be confused with trigeminal autonomic cephalgias, which is something that we will be talking about later. So what do medical students need to know about trigeminal neuralgia?
0: Yeah, um, it's a facial pain syndrome. Um, I was taught somewhere, or maybe I dreamed this, um, a 30-30-33-33 rule for the the location of the pain with trigeminal neuralgia. Does that add up to 100? Adds up to 99, I think. So uh, and and again, the listeners may find the reference. I haven't found it Uh, somewhere. I came across this and it seems to fit more or less. I've checked with the headache experts and they say this sounds reasonable. And that is 30% of the pain is in V three. So in the jaw unilaterally, 30% is in V2. So the uh, maxillary region, Uh, 30% is in both the jaw and the maxillary region so that's that accounts for about 90 percent of the pain so again lower half of the face we'll get to the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias which are upper half of the face but if somebody is sent to you with the question of trigeminal neuralgia and the pain is over the eye it's probably not trigeminal neuralgia so mostly jaw or lower face and then the 333 is uh three percent of the time it's bilaterally three percent of the time it's uh, the the v1 distribution and three percent of the time it's the whole face um so Those numbers may not be perfect, but the bottom line is it's usually the lower half of the face and usually Mm -hmm. unilateral. So that's the trigeminal part. The neuralgia part is, uh, neuralgia uh, refers to a specific character or type of pain, and it is an electrical, stabbing, and often extremely severe pain. Uh, People with trigeminal neuralgia will tell you that this is the worst pain they could ever imagine Uh, it is so severe that people have suicidal thoughts uh, sometimes with this type of pain and it's it's a nerve related pain so uh, it is often triggered by activation of those nerves so touching the face in that distribution shaving washing your face applying makeup brushing your teeth chewing even a cold breeze, you know, those sorts of things will trigger these jabs or jolts of this excruciating electrical pain. Um, so that's the history you want to get: the trigeminal lower half of the face neuralgia, severe, excruciating, shooting, electrical, tactile-induced pain. And then, uh, then we think about causes. Uh, and uh, a portion of the time, it's uh, spontaneous. Uh, it can be related to neurovascular compression, which we won't get into, but basically a blood vessel kind of pushes on the origin of the trigeminal nerve, causing a focal demyelination and euphactic transmission. We, we can put that aside for the moment. And uh, in, in, uh, in young people, we also want to worry about demyelinating disease like multiple sclerosis. So uh, in a young person with new onset trigeminal neuralgia, I, I will likely be investigating for possible demyelinating disease with an, with an MRI.
1: Okay. So to recap, we've focused so far on the first part of your framework, which is to determine if this is a primary or secondary headache disorder. And so we've discussed a lot of the red flag features using the two snoop for mnemonic, uh, as well as some important etiologies of secondary headaches that this mnemonic may point to. And these, these can't miss diagnoses include things like temporal arteritis, which is can't miss because it's vision threatening, as well as Uh, various causes of increased intracranial pressure, whether that's idiopathic or due to a lesion like a bleed as in subarachnoid hemorrhage or or a tumor.
0: Couldn't have said it better myself.
1: (laughs) So that wraps up our first segment on headaches. And specifically, we focused this time on secondary causes of headache. Uh, In our next episode, we'll be focusing more on primary causes,